This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.com. Good morning. I'm thankful to be with you and um, appreciate the prayers as I continue to heal and uh, um, overcome whatever it was that took me down. Um, just want to um, take a moment to pray before we dive back into this uh, book of Hebrews and specifically look at the latter half of chapter 10. So let's take a moment and pray together. Father, we are thankful, Lord, for your word. We're thankful for the power through the word of salvation as it declares the good news of Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the work of the Holy Spirit who applies that very word of God to our lives. We're thankful for the conviction of sin we feel and knowing that it reminds us that we cannot save ourselves, that we need a salvation outside of ourselves. We're thankful for that gift that you've provided in Christ. And Lord, we pray now that as we come, we would come humbly, that we would come as needy people who are hungry for you and you alone, for you and you alone are the one who satisfies God, I pray that you'd minister to the needs of this congregation. They are many. The physical needs, Lord, the emotional needs, the spiritual needs, the needs that each and every one of us has. We go to you, the great physician, and we seek your face and we seek your healing, your provision, your grace, your mercy, your kindness. So, Lord, we pray in this hour that you would work in us and that, Lord, we would be changed that we would be made more and more like your Son, our Savior. Lord, protect my words that I would not say more nor less than you've given me to say, but that I would be faithful to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was younger, there was a, a TV show, and some of you may remember this TV show. How many of you remember the TV show Lost in Space? Lost in Space. They made a Hollywood movie about that. I don't know if you knew that. 2018. I don't think that Hollywood movie was nearly as good as the original TV show. Lost in Space is an American sci-fi TV series. Get this, it originally aired between 1965 and 1968. Doesn't seem that long ago. Uh, it aired on CBS. The, C- the series was actually inspired by the 1812 novel Swiss Family Robinson. Did you know that? Was actually, that was based off of Switz Family Robinson. It was just a sci-fi twist to it. In that space adventure, the young man uh, that was kind of the centerpiece of that story, his name was Will, and he had a robot. A robot was his friend. It was his pet. It was his bodyguard in many ways. Uh, the robot was actually endowed with like superhuman strength. You would see at times in the show where the robot would come to the rescue uh, he had futuristic weaponry, things like light, lights that would come from his head and, and be able to burn things away and all this cool stuff as a kid. I remember being captured by that. Um, he would also, though, this robot would display human emotions. And I think that's what endeared him to us as we watched him. We saw the human emotions he displayed. The robot is actually a famous uh, 
part of the series. In fact, it's not so much because of the robot, but because of his, his uh, repeated lines that still live out in kind of the, the, uh, the realms of, uh, of memory. Re- words like this, does not compute. That was one of his famous clients. Does not compute, Will Robinson. Does not compute. Or he would say things like, warning, warning. Or the more famous, warning, Will Robinson, warning. And that idea was that, hey, we're in trouble, and the light would go off, and you would, you would sense the tension in the show when the robot said, warning, Will Robinson, warning. In our text this morning, that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He's yelling, warning, Hebrews, warning, warning. We are in the warning passage of the book of Hebrews. In fact, as David McWilliams points out, he says this is the greatest warning passage in the entire epistle. And as you know, there are many. In this epistle, there were many pastoral moments we've seen where the writer would stop and actually address the people and warn them. But here, David McWilliams says this is the greatest. This is the most important warning passage. And I want you to draw your attention to verse 26, and you can see the warning that he offers. He says something pretty scary as you read it. I remember as a young man hearing this in Sunday school for the first time and kind of being stunned by these words as my teacher read them. The words say this, For if you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Well, which one of us doesn't sin deliberately? (laughs) We, we hear that and we begin to think inside, what is that saying? What does that mean? Is there no hope? Is there no salvation? I think again, David McWilliams, as he says, this is the greatest warning passage in the entire epistle. He then goes on to explain why when he says this. As you will see, the writer is not simply dealing with the ongoing Christian struggle. He's not dealing with the Christian's temporary failures. No, he's dealing with one who outright rejects Christ and the gospel. The outright rejection. The hardness of heart. I want to back you up into unremembering the background to the book of Hebrews. This is a young church, a church that is facing persecution. This is a church that in many ways had experienced great growth. And many of those in the church were of Jewish descent. And because of the persecution, it was actually easier to go back to Judaism than it was to live out their Christian faith. See, Judaism was at least a recognized religion. Christianity was something new and and unexplainable. and, 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 And people thought it very mysterious and began to mock it and ultimately persecute it. And so there were some in the church that the writer of Hebrews is addressing that were saying, no, we're going to go back. Remember, we've been talking about how they preferred the sacrifices. They preferred the tabernacle. They preferred the priesthood. They preferred all of that rather than Jesus. And so the writer of Hebrews is warning them that this is a big deal. This is a big deal. In fact, the word that's attached to this warning is the word apostasy. For some of us, that's a word we've heard a lot. Maybe we've spent a lot of time in church and Sunday school and we've heard that word. But for others of us, we've maybe never heard that word. The word apostasy is the idea of abandonment. 
It's the idea of, of leaving. Uh, it's talked about in the letters to the Revelation, leaving their first love. To apostatize. To abandon the faith. To abandon the truth. To abandon Christ. To apostatize. And we see here that these were individuals who knew the truth. And they're choosing to abandon it. They're choosing to walk away. And you could imagine now why the writer of Hebrews is saying, Warning! Warning, Hebrews! Warning! Don't be so foolish. And you can hear now in verse 26 when he says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, showing the hardness of their hearts, after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Warning. And Jesus talked about the church. He talked about the church actually quite a bit in a lot of different ways. One of Jesus' favorite ways to talk about the church was, was, was that it was a sheepfold. And he was the shepherd. In John chapter 10, he calls himself the great shepherd. Interesting enough, in Matthew 25, when Jesus is referring to the church, the visible church we live in, the visible church made up of, of those who come in and out of our doors and, and the doors of other churches just like ours, Jesus says this, Jesus says that there is a mixture of both sheep and goats, believers and unbelievers. We don't always know which is which, but he does. In fact, he talks about in Matthew 25, verse 33, that the last day he will separate the sheep from the goats. Again, as a young man growing up in church, that always got my attention. The idea that there was going to be a day of separation from the sheep from the goats. Well, how do I know which one I am? And the writer of Hebrews is telling us we can know. And he's going to give us a checklist of things that become very important as we reflect on what it is to truly not abandon the gospel. He begins in the negative. He begins talking about what it looks like to abandon the gospel. He begins with some unfaithful actions. I'm going to call these the signs of apostasy if you're a note taker. Well, what's that first sign of apostasy? We go on sinning deliberately. He goes on to describe this he says, after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Notice this idea of sinning deliberately in the face of receiving the knowledge of truth. Being given the word of God and yet rejecting the word of God. What we do with the word of God matters, doesn't it? But what we do with the word of God matters absolutely in fact, in biblical Christianity, what we do with the Word of God is central to everything. We live in a day and age in which people are constantly attacking the Bible. Some want to just call it written by man. Others want to pick and choose the things that are acceptable for today's culture. But at the end of the day, it's God's Word. Listen to what 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15-17 through 17 says. Paul's writing to Timothy here, and he says from how from childhood... You've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Notice what Paul says about those sacred writings. They're able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. There's power in those sacred writings to make you wise. 
And then he continues as he's writing to young Timothy. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's God-inspired. He says, those God-breathed scriptures are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God can be made complete, equipped for every good work. I go back to the point that what we do with the word of God matters. The word of God is given to us, and what we do with it matters Somebody say, yeah, but does the Bible ever really say that it was written by God? I mean, sure, God breathed or God inspired, but there's artwork. There's things that are inspired by, by something other than the person. They, 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 there's something bigger. And I say, well, yeah, look at 2 Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, we read this. And listen to the way Peter says this about the word of God. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Friends, what you do with the Word of God matters. Because the Word of God is just that. It's God's Word. We don't have the right to pick and choose to select the things that we'll obey and the things we won't, the things we agree with and things we don't. We have a responsibility to be obedient to the word of God, to respond in faith and belief to the word of God. So here's the key point. To deliberately keep on sinning is ultimately to be rejecting God's word. And by doing that, It reveals that one is truly an enemy of God. And because you're an enemy of God, according to our text, you're doomed. You're doomed to face judgment. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Warning, warning. The first step of apostasy is deliberately denying and being disobedient to the word of God. But he doesn't stop there. He gives us a second sign of apostasy. Notice what he says in verse 29. Actually, I'll begin to verse 28. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved for the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? Notice the emphasis on rejecting the Son of God. That's the second level of apostasy. Not only are we rejecting the Word of God, now we're rejecting the Son of God. We're rejecting His deity, who He is, that He's fully God and fully man. People argue that and say there's no way that He can be God, no way He was born of a virgin, there's no way that that God became man. Jesus was just a good human example of a person. But that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says he is the Son of God. Jesus himself claims to be God. What we do with that matters. The second level here of apostasy is trampling the Son of God underfoot by rejecting his person. But it doesn't just stop at rejecting his person. They also reject his work, his work of atonement. Look at the words that are used in verse 29. 
profaning the blood of the covenant. Profaning the blood of the covenant. And see, those who apostatize, not only reject the word of God, they reject Jesus. They reject his work. They have no concern for the blood of Christ. And Jesus' blood is no more special than anyone else's, they might say. But ultimately, they are rejecting the very redemptive work of Christ, the only way of salvation. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says this way, in reference to Jesus and his work, he says, we now have been justified by his blood. Hear that. We've been justified by his blood. Much more, we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. What we do with Jesus matters. What we do with the word of God matters. And yet there's a third sign of apostasy. It's the rejection of the witness of the spirit of grace. Let me say that again. It's the rejection of the witness of the spirit of grace. And you say, well, where do you see that? Look at the end of verse 29. By which he is sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Outraged the spirit of grace. Why would the spirit of grace be outraged? Why would the spirit of grace be outraged? Well, you need to know who the spirit of grace is, the Holy Spirit. And what is the Holy Spirit's job? He proceeds from the Father and the Son. What is the Holy Spirit's job? The Holy Spirit, his job is to glorify the Son. To make much of the Son. Hear Jesus' words in John chapter 16, verse 14. Jesus says, he, referring to the Holy Spirit, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The reason the Holy Spirit here is outraged is because they're rejecting Christ. They're rejecting the word. See, they're rejecting the testimony of Scripture. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit has come to apply to the hearts of men. Interesting, if you look at this 28 and 29, you get an interesting phrase that the writer of Hebrew uses. He makes a point back to the Old Covenant because these people so much appreciate the old way. And he says this, if under the law of Moses, one was guilty on the testimony of two or three witnesses, notice where he goes, how much more greater will be the condemnation of those who reject the revelation of the Spirit? That's what he's saying. If you could be guilty in the old covenant by the witness of two or three men, how much more greater will the judgment and condemnation be when you are ultimately brought witness against by the Holy Spirit? The word of God. The testimony of Christ. Who he is and his work. The revelation the Holy Spirit has made known and declared. No one will escape that. That's a scary thing. Again, we can hear the words of the writer warning, Hebrews, warning. It's a serious thing to reject the word of God. It's a serious thing to run Christ underfoot. It's a serious thing to grieve the Holy Spirit. Warning. Hebrews, warning. See, all these warnings go all the way back to Hebrews chapter 6. 
That famous warning passage where it says, For it's impossible in the case of those who've once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the Word of God, who had the powers of the age to come and have now fallen away to be restored again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up with contempt. This is not the first time the writer of Hebrews has said these things. We call that the the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is in some one particular sin. It's the hardness of heart in reaction to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The testimony of Scripture. The truth of Jesus. And that rejection of the Holy Spirit is, i.e., the rejection of the gospel. And what happens when one rejects the gospel? Judgment. Damnation. Wrath of God. Look at the verses of verse 30 and verse 31. He says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. In verse 31, he says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing. And church, we must take God's glory serious because God takes his own glory serious. God takes his word serious. God takes his son serious. And God takes the testimony of the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit serious. We must not ignore any of those. All through this writing, the writer of Hebrews keeps talking about the old way and he compares the old covenant to the new covenant. If it was bad to do these things then, how much worse is it to do it today in light of this? Christ has come. The revelation of Jesus has been made manifest. And Jesus has went to the cross. Jesus has resurrected from the tomb. Jesus has ascended into heaven. Jesus is in heaven now making intercession for his people. These are facts. Biblical facts. Declared facts of God's word. If it was wrong in the Old Testament to rebel against God and we see those pictures again and again in those Old Testament stories, how much more serious is it to reject the resurrected Christ. See, that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get us to say. Warning, Hebrews, warning. This is serious business. I truly believe that the writer of Hebrews here is being a friend. He's not trying to, to ruin their pudding, so to speak. He just wants them not to eat the poison. He wants them to make sure that they don't get too close to the fire. As a good friend, he's, he's speaking truth, and I believe he's speaking truth in love. In our culture, that isn't always well received. But that's exactly what we see the writer of Hebrews doing out of great love for his people. Almost, almost as that picture of the robot loving Will Robinson, warning Will Robinson, warning. Those human features that come out in that robot, they captured it in Lost in Space. How much more is it here set before us? as the writer of Hebrews is crying out, petitioning to the church there. Warning, Hebrews. Warning. He doesn't stop. He wants them to see the positives. He doesn't just want them to run from the negative. He wants them to see the positives. And he's going to do this in a a very unique way. He's going to talk about three directions, the past, the future, and the present. He picks the order, not me. (laughs) 
But begins in verse 32, he says, recall the former days. He's talking about the past there. Recall the former days when you were enlightened. You, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes being your partner with those who were so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Think about that statement for a moment. How many of us would be joyful to see our property plundered? But they were, they were joyful, get this, because they knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What a testimony of their faith that they once had. He's calling them back to that. He's saying, look back, remember, recall. He's saying, remember that you stood your ground in the past. He's pointing to them that, that they stood in the face of persecution. And that they were willing to struggle with suffering. When I think of the word struggle, I want you to think of like the idea of an athletic contest. The stadium is full and the people are viewing it. Here, nothing is passive. It's about being all in. They're showing their ability by standing their ground. Think of two wrestlers going at it. They stood their ground. In verse 33, he offers this description of standing. And he says in this example that they were did so publicly exposed. Publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes it wasn't their affliction. Maybe it was their friend or their partner. In verse 34, he talks about they're willing to have compassion on those who are in prison. How they were willing to stand fast with those who suffered for the gospel. And then he does bring up that point that they were joyfully willing to accept the plundering of their own property for the gospel. He's giving a testimony of their faith. Of how they stood faithful in the past and he's saying, remember that. That's who you were. But then he begins to focus on the future. Look at the second half of verse 34. Why were they willing to do all of that? You knew that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. You knew that there was something greater than the possessions of this world. You knew that this life wasn't all there was. You know the hope that is given to you in Christ. Peter writes about this in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 5. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen to verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed to the last time. See, they had faith. And this faith allowed them to stand firm. And this is the call that he makes to them. Remember your past and do so because of the hope that you have in the future. And so he calls them to the present, verses 35 and 36. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward for you. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Key word here is perseverance. 
You think of perseverance once you think about a runner. Can I just say out loud that running never looks fun? You look at runners, they never smile. As a runner runs, it just looks grueling and painful. You almost feel like you should stop at a moment and pray for them. Right? You have that feeling something's just not right. But here's the thing. Runners are about enduring. A runner is about persevering. A runner is about overcoming. A runner is one who beats their body into submission. And that's the idea here about perseverance. Don't throw away your confidence. Why, it has great reward. And see, runners seem to understand that's something I don't. That it actually is good for you. And they're willing to beat their bodies into submission for that purpose. And that's exactly what the writer is saying. Here in the present, pursue perseverance. See, perseverance of the saints is a key doctrine in the Bible. We're called to persevere. And Dr. Rick Phillips reminds us that perseverance is in the present tense of the Christian life. And it typically involves a fierce struggle. Just like that runner. In Romans chapter 8, verse 37, we're reminded that in the, in the persevering that we are more than conquerors. That's good news. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, we're reminded that we're overcomers. That's good news. See, in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the fierce battle, in the midst of persevering, because of who God is, we are overcomers. We are conquerors. We're saved by grace. We're kept by grace. We persevere in grace. And that's the marker of the difference between the true believer and the one who's not a true believer is perseverance. And perseverance is about doing the will of God. It's what we do with the word of God. It's what we do about what the word of God says regarding Christ. It's, what, it's, it's ultimately how we ultimately seek to glorify him and live out gratitude for him. In verse 38, he actually says in, in, in Roman, or Hebrews 10 here, in verse 38, he says, my righteous one will live by faith. That's the idea of doing his will, living by faith. That's, that's your call, church. Live by faith. To trust, to stand your ground, to persevere in faith. When the culture is pressing in, live in faith. When the world is pushing against you, live in faith. When your body's working against you, live in faith. Live in faith. That's the call. That's how we do the will of God. And guess what the result is? Look at verse 39. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. Talking about those who persevere. But of those who have faith and persevere. And pres- I'm sorry, those who have faith and preserve their souls. We're saved. And the key point to all this is where does it begin? It's the same place we talked about a couple weeks ago when we were working on the front half of chapter 10. It begins in the heart a heart that we've been given. Ezekiel 36, 24 through 28 is the promise of the new covenant, which the book of Hebrews is all about, the new covenant. Listen to this promise again of the new covenant. He says, I will take you from the nations. I will gather you from the countries. I will bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. 
and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Hear this, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. You will dwell in the land that I give you, your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. What's the centerpiece? The heart. He gives us the heart to persevere. He gives us a heart to have faith and do his will. He gives us the heart to believe his word. He gives us the heart to trust in Christ. He gives us the heart that we don't want to grieve the Spirit. He gives us the heart. There's a famous song many of you in this room know. You may not want to admit it, but you know it. The song is Stairway to Heaven. In that song, it says there's two paths you can go by. The writer then says, but in the long run, there's still time to change which road you're on. I agree with part of that. There are two roads you can go by. The whole Bible tells us that. Psalm 1, the very first psalm, talks about two roads. The way of the righteous versus the way of the wicked. The writer Hebrews here is talking about two roads. The way of the judged and the damned and the way of the saved. So I do agree with the writer of Stairway to Heaven that there are two paths you can go by. Where I disagree with him strongly is that there is still time to change your mind. Because what's captured there is that go ahead and put it off. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter today how you live. You got tomorrow. Well, guess what? Tomorrow comes. Scripture says that today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may be too late. And the question for each of us is, am I standing up? Am I persevering? Or am I shrinking back? That's the question the writer of Hebrews would have us contemplate as he yells in our ear, warning, Hebrews, warning. May we trust the word of God. May we love his son. And may we never grieve his spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this reminder. We're thankful for this good news, which reminds us and calls us to faith. A faith that has been granted to us, a faith which has been gifted in our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that we would be faithful, a faithful witness in a world that so desperately needs to know Jesus. But Lord, we know that begins with us. It begins with us in what we do with your word. It begins with us in how we respond to that word regarding Christ and who he is and what he has done responds to the witness of the Spirit as he brings conviction in our lives. And I, God, I pray for each and every one of us that we would be a people of faith, that we would persevere, that we would stand up, and that we would not shrink back. We pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.com.